All right, Jim, take it away. All right. Hello, and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Patrick Harvey. Hello, Patrick. Hi, guys. So How glad to have you, you here. I'm, yeah. so, I'm so happy to be here. Should we mention Patrick Harvey is a Shakespeare, a State of Shakespeare fan. I know. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I want to know how you discovered it. I so I was I was getting into podcasts in like 2013 or 14 and I was like I need I need to know what's going on. So I went to the Apple podcast store and I just looked for Shakespeare. There there were a couple of history podcasts, there were a couple of literature podcasts, but I was really looking for something that focused on performance. And then I found this 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 one series that kept that had all of these entrees. And so I was I was like, huh, this tan, we got this tan logo. It's called <laughs> the State of Shakespeare. And I was like, oh, they're just talking to actors. That's interesting. I wonder what they talk about. Oh, they're talking with actors who are working on parts. Oh. And then um, I can't remember what the, the first episode I listened to was, but a few that stood out to me were when you guys talked to Kelly Curran about playing um, uh, uh, Larry, Percy. Lady Percy in DC and talked to Jason O'Connell about playing Perales in All's Well and they yeah. did speeches and, and I was like well this is just this is it's like a master class it was great to hear from you Patrick we rarely get feedback from our listeners so it was such a delight to hear from you and we were really excited to talk to you because you're engaged in something that's extremely timely in fact, you are part of the inaugural season of the Connecticut Shakespeare Festival. Yes, yes. This is it, this would be exciting news anytime, but in the in the wake of a year-long pandemic, which has seen the closure of of live performances and and basically an end to the theater for for uh, for the time being, um, to have a, a theater company put together a season of shows is very very exciting. It's big news. So, how did you become involved? So I am close friends with one of the directors who's going to, going to be directing Midsummer Night's Dream. Her name's Emma Rosa Wentz. She directed me in a, a production of Othello in a bar almost 10 years ago. And we've kept in touch. We did a show at the Tank off off Broadway a couple of years ago. Um, I went with her to, to Maine to do a play in a barn. And she's been working a lot with Scranton Shakespeare and with Theater for a New Audience. She recently directed uh, John Lilly's Galatea for a reading with Red Bull. She contacted me and said, I'm directing Midsummer Night's Dream for the Connecticut Shakespeare Festival. And I said, how can I submit for this? And? And so, uh, so I, I contacted the artistic director, Sean Harris, and I, he had me send in a tape. And it was my first time doing a theater callback over Zoom. And so they let me, they let me know that they wanted to cast me in the role of Bottom. And I was thrilled. Yeah, it's what a role the role of a lifetime. And oddly enough, the first role I played when I was, the first Shakespeare role I played when I was 16 as a student in Cambridge, England under an oak tree. So I, it feels like a, a strange, personally it just feels like a strange coming of full circle for things. Absolutely. And how do you feel about performing in a live show before a live audience? After a year and a half, it's been a long time. We've, we've all been just raring to go for to get back to work doing what we love, to do the sort of time-honored work of putting a show together and collaborating with designers and just like putting the puzzle pieces together. And I've been, I've been learning my lines on my own and I realized I, I need actors with me. We need to do that al alchemy work. Are you doing all of your rehearsals face-to-face -face or are you doing some preliminary work over Zoom? So I've had a couple of Zoom meetings with Emma, the director, 
and we will be rehearsing face to face. And since the show will be outdoors, we're going to be doing it outdoors in rehearsals uh, at the farm we'll be performing at, which is this lovely spot in West Hartford. Have you met the other mechanicals? I haven't met the other mechanicals yet. I am fortunate enough to have worked with my Helena, who I won't be working with, and my Titania, who I know very well. She and I have a performance history of playing mismatched romantic couples. So I think mm. this is going to be a sort of, this is sort of a continuation of our career arc. You've had some time off from being an al- a live theatrical actor. And I, and I think it's a muscle, right? Acting on stage. Absolutely. Um, and so what muscles, or it's a muscles, what muscle are you most concerned about re-engineering and reflexing? So... I think especially in theater, there's the muscle of immediate response that has to be at its peak when you're working with other actors. And that's why I've been I've been really frantic in my preparation where I realize I need other actors to work with just so I can get out of my, I don't want to say line readings, but my stale preparation mode and out of actor mode into performance mode where I am no longer an actor preparing a role. I'm, I'm just a person interacting with other people because I think that's where the best theater happens and where the best Shakespeare can happen. So the, 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 personally, the faster I can get away from, you know, knowing where the commas are, knowing where I'm breathing and just into breathing and sharing a moment with Peter Quince or with Titania, the happier I will be. Now to prep for that, I've been doing all of my vocal warmups, making sure I can, you know, I can breathe out for 30 seconds, four times in a row. So I'm not, I'm not worried about breathing. I'm not worried about support. I did not realize how quickly my muscles of articulation could atrophy. <laughs> well, it's so exciting. I mean, you know, I think this is, this is an event that's happening all over the country uh, this summer is all these theater companies are going to start, you know, popping up and doing these things. Um, and it's really interesting to hear the, about the re-entry. You're doing Bottom, and you have a history of doing a lot of clowns. I do. Or Lotharios, as you put it. Lotharios. I wouldn't quite classify Caliban as a Lothario, but... but yeah, that's true. Uh, but Feste and Puck, yeah. as a matter of fact, I think you played. Um, and I think Conrad, is that... Yep. Right? Um, yeah. So, so what's, your, what's your take? Like, what's your special magic with the clowns? So I, I couldn't quite say. I think what it is, is I am drawn to prose characters for some reason. I, I had a great moment of self-education where I read Giles Block's book, Speaking the Speech. It's called Speaking the Speech, An Actor's Guide to Playing Shakespeare. Giles worked at the Globe Theater in London. He works with the American Shakespeare Center in Stanton, Virginia. And he has a theory about verse versus prose in that verse is the, is the way characters will reveal something about themselves. And they use prose when they are trying to conceal something about themselves. And I think that is a great way to start. I think it's a better way to start than from the point of view of like verse verse is more structured and prose is more, you know, rustic or it's the sound of everyday speech. The, I think those things can certainly be true, but I also think the prose is always more structured than the verse. And in fact, some of character, most of characters, most intelligent characters speak in prose. Falstaff, 
Benedict, Beatrice, Rosalind, they all use prose to conceal to conceal their aims. Rosalind, especially, Viola, especially. Falstaff uses it to conceal a certain thing, I think. And so I've been starting from the point of view of like, what is Bottom trying to conceal? His insecurities about his class, possibly, his insecurities about his acting talent. <laughs> I think those are all part and parcel. Well, I'm I'm interested you said that prose is more structured than verse and i think that's that's the opposite of what a lot of people would think so can you can you explain that a little bit absolutely so verse absolutely has a structure and shakespeare was a master of the form he was writing in and he knew how to hit how to use the you know the five ims of a line to hit different emotional stresses and i think he used the structure of prose to craft more logical arguments. I've been trying to look this up, but there was a reverend in Elizabethan England who uh, apparently had a huge influence on Shakespeare's writing. And he was the only person that Shakespeare would close the theater for. So when he knew this reverend was giving a sermon, he'd close the theaters. I can almost imagine him requiring his actors to show up so, so that they could listen to the reasoned arguments that this guy was making. And I wish I had his name in front of me. Are you talking about Robert Southwell? Yes, thank you. Well identified. And I think we hear it the clearest in Hamlet's advice to the players, especially when he says, you know, it's from the purpose of playing whose aim both at the first and now was and is to hold as it were the mirror up to nature. So there is a rhythm to it. It's, it's harder for the actor to find, but it's in there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. I mean, uh, if I if I can paraphrase what I think I hear you saying, it's that prose seems to facilitate the development, the construction of a reasoned argument, and verse maybe facilitates, uh, maybe allows a character to reveal uh, an emotional state or or images or feelings in a way that prose doesn't. I, and I think and- I, th- I think that's very very accurate. Thank you for. Thank you for condensing condensing my, my word vomit. <laughs> Garrett's really good at that. He does that to me too. Um, I've got so many questions for you. But tell us, before we dive in to the speech, tell us a little bit about Bottom, someone that, a character that is beloved by those who, who know Shakespeare well and are familiar with Midsummer Night's Dream. But, but some of us who are not as familiar might, might benefit from you know, hearing your take on this character. Who is he? What's he all about? What happens to him? Yes. Nick Bottom is a weaver (laughs) and he also moonlights as an actor. Now in Shakespeare's day, he, as he was growing up, um, traveling troops of guildsmen, craftsmen would put on plays that the, the plays were actually put on by these unions basically. So you could argue that Nick is not a great actor, that he's sort of someone who with a day job who's moonlighting as an actor, or you could argue that he's actually, you know, an actor by trade and that weaving is just how he, you know, how he pays his bills. The catering of the 1400s. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. Weaving, uh, yeah, just we- weaving to, to, to make a trade. I love that you de- describe him first as a weaver. That wouldn't have been the first character description, but it's so revealing that you, that you do that. Because, of course, you know, at the time, someone who was uh, a tradesman 
would have probably been apprenticed to that trade at a very early age at the mm-hmm. expense of any other education. So, you know, uh, you know, from the age of 10 or maybe earlier, he would have learned everything there was to learn about weaving, but very mm-hmm. little else about what was going on in the world. Yes. And it, it, in fact, I, th- I think that kind of speaks to the way he attacks things in, in the way that he he sees things as sort of a, you know, just a knot to be untied. He, the way he approaches problems of theatricality that his company brings up when they decide to put on the play, Pyramus and Thisbe, a Greek myth very akin to Romeo and Juliet, is he just sets out to solve problems of production. How are we going to, you know, create a wall? How will we indicate that these lovers met by moonlight? How will we convince the audience that our actor playing a lion is not actually a lion and that the <laughs> actor playing Pyramus is not dying. <laughs> the real questions of theater craft that right. really get back to what we do, you know? So, so at bottom, this guy is, is a tradesman, an aspiring actor, but not a very good one. I think, he, I, I think he's less adept at acting. And I think he probably thinks he is better than he actually is. I have a. I also have a theory that his 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 idea of good acting is the kind that we would see in in Shakespeare's day in plays like Tamburlaine or King Cambyses, tyrants, tyrant acting. He right. says he could play a tyrant. He says he could play Heracles rarely. So what he lacks in experience, he more than makes up for in exuberance. In exuberance, and he has studied. Like he has. I I get the sense that he has watched. The, all the battle scenes of Lord of the of Lord of the Rings movies. He knows <laughs> he knows all of the all of the declaimers. You know, I I got the sense when he I, I won't spoil it for for too many folks, but he has uh, a death scene. I hope I'm not spoiling too many folks. He has a death scene, and I I I, I wondered if there was a, a point where he could just bring in all of the great cinematic moments of history. And this would I think this would this this is something that could be explored in a production where we're going completely modern but where his, di- his death scene just contains like, fly, you fools, I'm Spartacus, I drink your milkshake, those kinds of things, just to, just, just to indicate like he is an actor's actor. So the, the backdrop for all of this is that so- somewhere in Athens, there's going to be a big event, a big public event. There's going to be something like Athens Got Talent, basically, a kind of a glorified talent show as part of all the festivities surrounding a wedding. Mm-hmm. And Bottom uh, has assembled a troupe of amateur actors who are going to put on a skit. A skit that, yes, a skit that I think he is hoping will get him some attention. Maybe he can, maybe he can move to weaving part-time. And they take it very seriously. This, is not, this is not a farce. This is not a, a, little, a, little, a little bit of fluff. No, this and this they just you know, yes. I'm not. I, I won't go. I won't go into too much into the the context of or the the content of what the play they're doing, but it's a it's serious subject matter. Most of their time spent in rehearsal is just is just figuring out what kinks they're how how really to tell the clearest story <laughs> is the true aim of their intent. So this is bottom as bottom, and they've come across the problem that the women in the audience might be frightened at the character of Snug, who is intended to play a lion. He has one line and it's roaring. And 
Bottom has already missed his opportunity to play the lion in addition to the lead role. So I think he's still giving it his college best try of telling the clearest story. Always gets back to that. Someone has just suggested that they need to, they're going to, they're going to need to write another prologue to indicate that Snug is not actually a lion. And Bottom says, nay, you must name his name. And half his face must be seen through the lion's neck. And he himself must speak through, saying thus, or to the same effect. Ladies, or fair ladies, I would wish you, or I would request you, or I would entreat you not to fear, not to tremble my life for yours. If you think I come hither as a lion, it were pity of my life. No, I am no such thing. I am a man as other men are. And there indeed, let him name his name and tell them plainly he is snug snug the joiner <laughs> well, well what a, a very uh you know practical solution just i again just solving problems like a weaver just <laughs> un, you know figuring out the knots <laughs> and that's from act three scene one of a midsummer night's dream that's right and that is a problem-solving scene, I think. It looked like you forgot who was playing it. His name. Was it Jealousy? I, th- I, uh, I for, for, for me, I think there's a point where Snug is a newcomer. He's a joiner, you know? He, that he's, <laughs> he's a newcomer to the company. I think I, in my prep, my, 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 my pre- preparation choice is that Bottom doesn't know Snug's name. And so it's like, and so I think that's also why in Act Four, he's the only one of the mechanicals that he doesn't call by name. Francis Flute, Robin Snout, Starveling, whoops, forgot the last guy. (laughs) And that's that's a choice we're going to explore. But I love it. But not go too far into probably. There's a whole play to get to. Yeah. Well, I mean, but but it's all those little choices that make the difference, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you have to, you have to treat a play like this, like it's a new play, even though, you know, I worked on it, you know, however many years ago, I, I, I still probably know the role, like at some point in my head, I'm trying to like unlearn and relearn. Right. So yeah, so just creating, creating a new world every time. Can you please do act five scene one with Pyramus? I would <laughs> be honored. We should act give five. a little bit of background for yeah. this, because now this is bottom, not as himself the actor director of the company, but this is Bottom playing a character. And the character he is playing is? A soldier named Pyramus. I think he's a soldier. He's a lover at least. Yes, they've, they've put together a, a, a staging of the myth of Pyramus and Thisbe, two lovers who met by moonlight, even though their families were at war. Much like Romeo and Juliet has discovered what he thinks is evidence that his love has been killed. A tragic turn of events. Really tragic. And, and who wrote this play? This play was written by the director of the company, whose name is Peter Quince. Quince. And do we, I think we learn in some folio that he's a carpenter. 
Yes. So not right. not a theater person by trade. But again, he Peter and Bottom have a I think they have a unique relationship. They both they both want to tell the clearest story. I think Peter is more geared towards the whole of the production, whereas Bottom is has the most insight into his track in particular. <laughs> As any good actor does. As any well, it's it's a it's a funny thing in that, you know, the playwright and the director will know the story and the overall arc more than anyone, but the the every actor can answer any question about their character. That's where their head is. Right, right. This play has, this play has just so many things to reveal about what we do, our process, you know? I imagine Peter Quince is Bob Balaban's character in Waiting for Guffman. Completely. Yeah, yeah. Just long suffering, quiet, yes. All right. Sweet moon. I thank thee for thy sunny beams. I thank thee, moon, for shining now so bright. For by thy gracious, golden, glittering gleams, I trust to take of truest Thisbe the sight. But stay, oh, spite, but mock, poor knight, what? Dreadful dole is here. Eyes, do you see? How can it be? Oh, dainty duck, oh, dear. Thy mantle, good. What? Stained with blood? Approach ye, furies fell. <laughs> Fates, come, come, cut, thread, and thrum, quail, cross, conclude, and quell. <laughs> Or something so he, like that. <laughs> he's a bit of a um, emotive actor. It sounds like very emotive. Really loves his rolled R's. <laughs> loves his yeah. I really loves the sound of his voice, where it just echoes in your mouth mm -hmm. in, the, in the mouth chamber, even mm -hmm. if no one else can hear it. We're gonna be mic'd. I'm not worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> Might have watched a little Laurence Olivier in his time. Yeah, a little Laurence Olivier, a little bit of Patrick Stewart back in his heyday. Yeah. <laughs> so Patrick, thank you for sharing that speech of Bottoms. And as I was listening to you, I was I was struck by how how effective your reading was. Because if I if I closed my eyes and imagined that I was a non-native speaker of English, I think I could still have followed the thread of what was going on. Which I think is so important because there are so many barriers to a to a contemporary uh, performance of this particular scene. There's so many, it's, it's working on so many layers, right? First of all, a contemporary audience of Shakespeare's would have been more familiar with the simple vocabulary that is being employed. They would have been able to identify the, the difference between verse that is masterfully wit written and well executed, which are two different things, and verse that is poorly written and poorly executed, and I'm not sure a modern audience would necessarily be able to apprehend that difference. And when you add onto that, the fact that he's playing a, a, a highly melodramatic character in a highly melodramatic circumstance, there are just, it's operating at 
it has to operate at a level that that an audience of first-time Shakespeare listeners can appreciate and long-time Shakespeare aficionados can can also enjoy. I love that. I think that's one of the the draws of the Pyramus and Fisbe play is that it, whether or not you know that it's it's badly written, it you can appreciate that it's over the top and emotive and just like of a certain quality that can be understood and grasped and sort of seen through. Um, and and I, I think the, the, the sort of intelligent stupidity of that play in particular is really, really important. Like where punctuation happens, where the rhythm changes for no apparent reason and where alliteration is taken to the logical extreme. How much do you think Bottom is improvising in that speech? Or do you think it's completely scripted? That is a question that I'm working on. I'm trying to figure, I, I've been working on where he might go up on a line where I, th I think the line, sweet moon, I thank thee for thy sunny beams. I thank thee moon for shining now so bright is a moment of, it's a possible moment where he just goes up and has to turn to Peter and go like, what do I say here? Um, I also think that uh, later on where he goes from thus die I, thus, 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 to now am I dead. I wonder if there's a moment where he went off script, where he, he ended Peter's script and went into Nick's script. That, those are things we're gonna work out in rehearsal, but there are so many moments of chaos that, that have to be explored. Well, and to Garrett's point, I think that it is a chaotic, it is chaotic script, but but Patrick, you're doing such a great job of navigating the chaos that makes it easy to listen to. It's so much fun to work on. It's just, it's like it's the gift that keeps on giving if you if you meet it. Uh, it's such a fun show. It's so fun. Not only is Midsummer such a great show, and this particular part of the show is is a crowd pleaser. I just can't imagine the energy that's going to be up there in Hartford, July seventh. It's it's really going to be something. I, I'm 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 a little shocked that I get this privilege to tell this story because this play especially is just such a love letter to theater and to coming together and just enjoying the cre the enjoying creation. And when does it open? It opens July seventh. Is that correct? So we open July seventh, run through July seventeenth at Our Farm in West Hartford, Connecticut. You can learn more at ConnecticutShakespeareFestival.org. Patrick Harvey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me so much. Thanks, Patrick. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.